0: We come to, in the story of Samuel and, and the cascade of faith through the generations, um, a character study on the person of Eli, the half-hearted. Um, and so we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 27, Eli the half-hearted. Last week we followed little Samuel in his, uh, in his little priestly uh, gear. And uh, into the tabernacle at Shiloh. And there we met Hophni and Phineas, the hard hearted sons of Eli, who were also the priests in, in service. And they didn't know the Lord, uh, and they weren't in the least bit interested in what he had to say. For them, faith was something to exploit and mock. But our journey continues, and today we come to Eli. In verse 27, we read a prophecy against the house of Eli. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what Yahweh says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you, note plural, that word is in the plural, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Remember the guys were nabbing the good bits and wouldn't let that which was for the Lord uh, go to the Lord. Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that uh, members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming then when I will cut off uh, your strength and the strength of your priestly house. So that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight, sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. That's a lovely word to share with someone. <laughs> Just such an edifying, encouraging Sunday, isn't it? Huh? Said to the guys, you thought last week was rough. <laughs> That's a prayer meeting. What happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phineas? will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead. plead, Appoint me to a priestly office so that I can have some food to eat. Notice that ministry had simply become a way of sustaining themselves, looking after themselves. But this is so sad. It's just more judgments from God. This is a rough passage. I don't know how you guys came back after last week, but this is even harder. But why is God so upset? I mean, Eli seems to be a decent fellow. In the next chapter, for example, he will teach Samuel to say, Speak, Lord, your servant is hearing in that famous encounter. Why is God so upset? Because fundamentally, Eli gives us the picture of someone who's half-hearted towards God. While the hard-hearted simply don't listen to what God is saying, don't care, quite frankly, scorn and mock it, half-hearted people show a willingness to at least hear what God is saying, even eagerness. You know, sort of like, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, is their tagline. In fact, once God has spoken to Samuel, Eli is determined to hear what God actually said. And he says, in effect, I hope God gets you if you don't tell me exactly what God says. He's like, he's really curious to hear the word. He really wants the preaching and the message. But like seed falling on shallow ground or even among weeds and thorns, that initial phase of promise and receptiveness leads to nothing. For the half-hearted, even though they seem keen to hear God's word, nothing changes. It's like an immunity disorder. Half-hearted people become immune to the very words that they so eagerly listen to because they never activate them with their obedience. See, the problem was Eli was not willing to change anything. He wanted to hear God's word. He's big on hearing, small on doing. And there's three deep warnings here. Uh, Obviously, the scriptures had been passed down. There was the, the tradition and the message of God that was there. And people knew what they should be doing. And he ignored, as it were, the written word. And then he ignores this hectic prophetic confrontation from an unnamed man of God. And then he still ignores... The words of Samuel because Samuel has to then after that speak Lord encounter actually tell Eli God is dead serious and so it's not like this is just a once-off bad mood God has been working with Eli working with Eli working with Eli and Eli is listening 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 but doing squat nothing with the message that is coming now why do I say this is the picture of the half hearted I'll, I'll go us there you see God has been giving Eli, uh, let's put it this way, sorry. Um, In chapter three, in verse 17, Eli, after he hears the last of these messages from Samuel himself, says this, he is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord is the Lord, and the other guy said, well, the Lord is the Lord, let him do whatever is good in his own eyes. What's the problem? The problem is God is asking him to do something, and he's going, God, you do something. He's got this screwed up sovereignty doctrine that says God will do whatever God will do, and it's got nothing to do with what I do. And so he's not doing the thing that God is telling him to do. That's the fundamental problem. Eli listens and then says, "We'll let God do. What did God want Eli to address? At least three things. Number one, Eli had not been upholding the integrity of the priesthood to which God appointed him. This was very serious. The word of God comes with a reminder of his calling, God's purpose on his life, his heritage. And God has not changed from his side, but his calling is to serve God. And he stopped serving God and he started serving someone else, something else. And then, of course, there's this relationship with his very hard-hearted and compromised sons. But it's not just a family issue. You see, Eli is the spiritual leader of God's people. And regardless of what his sons were doing, he was not protecting the integrity of the priestly office. Reminder, God holds leaders accountable for those whom they permit in ministry. And so he was not looking after that. Number two, he was party to the scorning of and the despising of God's sacrifice. He was party to, as we saw last week, treating God with contempt. And so verse 29 tells us that Eli was literally getting fat off, his, uh, off the practice of his sons. Remember, they were stealing all the fat portions. You'll see in chapter four that it says now Eli was very heavy. He was a chunky, hunky boy, and even in his old age, he was huge. He was not just watching his sons do this. He was actually letting them feed him off this compromise, and then probably very devastating as it says he was honoring or valuing his sons more than God. How often do we hear the statement, my children come first? When the Lord says, He says, you're honoring them, and He has the problem. I mean, of course, we're meant to honor people. You're honoring them, you're valuing them. Three words more than me. More than me. Divided loyalties, split allegiances. Jesus, Matthew, t- uh, 20, sorry, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank you cannot even serve God and your kids this is a tough one for us parents isn't it but God does not want us to place our kids higher than we place him now we can be confident and the Lord's word is in the text it says if you'll place me first they will be blessed and the curse is precisely because you have tried to elevate them and you've made them an idol and you serve them instead of serving me. And what you think is in their best interest is actually going to guarantee their destruction. Sure. And we're just hoping that it's not true. And we, you know, Jesus says you can't do it. You can't serve two, not even your kids and God. And we want to say, Lord, I love you, I'll follow you, I'll answer you. I will, I will do what you say except for, and in Eli's case, it was his kids. For some of us, it might be our career, it might be our assets, it might be our nest egg, whatever it is. I will give everything except. And what do we have? Double minds, divided loyalties, torn hearts, because we want more than God. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that it's God who has created everything for us richly to enjoy. But if we go after what he's created for us to enjoy instead of him, it becomes a curse. Your kids are a blessing from the Lord, Psalm 127. But we've got to get the sequence right. Now, imagine Eli came to your life group. And he told us that on Sunday, like some whack job prophet came and gave him this hectic word. And he wants us to help him sort of like, you know, discern the word. Um, And you go, what did he say? Well, he said, I had to fire my sons. Now, how would you feel if you had to help someone go through a prophetic word like that? Oh, that's not very edifying. I wonder if it strengthens, comforts, encourages, you know, like, sure. It just can't be God. Besides, God would never ask you. This I've heard. I've heard it from us. God would never ask you to not put your kids first. Challenging thoughts. Valuing our families more than God. But I don't want to kind of land in such a... It's a penetrating space maybe some of the stuff that's gone down, and some of the racial conduct our is, is precisely because we haven't called out. We might not be stealing offerings from the altar of God, but there are other areas in which we're going, I don't want to upset my family. I don't want to see people disadvantaged. I don't wanna, and, and it's that fundamental concern for self-preservation. But I want to I introduce two little bits of research. Firstly, from teachers. Do we have any teachers here yeah, this morning? Okay, there's a few who are sort of owning up <laughs> gently, very small. Um, the Academy of Educational Leadership Journal had an article by Christopher Alexander and James Sisko, and they offer an interesting, you know, non-Christian analysis of our current generation of kids. Our most recent generation, not those who are generation alpha who are just about to be born, but the ones around us now and going into university, um, their research shows, and uh, teachers might be familiar with this, all of us might be familiar with it, um, that they've been raised by, quote, helicopter parents, like you're hovering over your kids. There's a lot of downdraft. Helicopter parents offering trophies for all. There's no first prize, there's no second prize, there's no third, everybody wins, okay? <laughs> trophies for all. And, and the idea behind the trophies for all, the research shows, is to shield our kids from any negative thoughts about themselves. They just mustn't have a bad thought about themselves, not even if something's patently wrong. And then most tellingly, by parents who attempt, now this is a almost religious word, but it's in the secular research, to vicariously live through their children. Now you can understand the first two. If you're trying to get your sense of self-worth, if you are the person who's at stake when your kids do or don't behave, or succeed or don't, or win or don't, if it's your ego, if it's you, you actually living through them, then of course you're going to hover like a helicopter and create a complete downdraft around their lives. And of course you're going to want them to always get a prize. Why? Because it's you that is getting the award at the end of the day. You're living through your kids. In other words, this is not just a 3,000-year-old problem. Our sense of self, our identity, and fulfillment and success has become defined by how our kids are doing. That's the research. Anyone identify? No, you're all too spiritual. It goes deep. I mean, of course we care. God is not asking Eli to not care. But the biblical paradigm has been inverted by this culture. The biblical paradigm is the flip side. That our kids get their values and sense of identity and success from us. We don't derive and live vicariously through them. But naturally as they grow, they learn to derive their sense of value and their sense of direction and their sense of identity from the stability we provide. Do you know how threatening it is to be a kid who carries your parents' sense of well-being in, as their responsibility? It's completely terrifying. You're as unstable as they are. Now, I'm not saying don't listen and don't engage, but, but you want to be like the rock in their lives. Cindy and I have uh, these words of advice for each other when we need them, which is often, stay the parent. Like, like, <laughs> they're the kids, <laughs> and the ours are young adults. adults. But just stay the parent. Just stay the parent. Let them like, be the rock. Let them get their sense of identity. And God, some of you know that for us right now, that's very real. So, can I then pass to some Christian research? So, this is your overhead projector, it's quite fancy, high tech. <laughs> We, we were inside, now it screens next to me. Hi. This is your multimedia, okay. <laughs> so this is uh, research by um, uh, Merton and Richard, and uh, they point to an overlap of church and family culture in which the passing on of faith and that works. So I didn't want to just look at the stuff where it doesn't work. Um, and, and they've done some real research into what kind of environment is there when this thing starts working. And, you know, we were singing about Jesus for our families. And we were praying beforehand about this generational cascade, Psalm 145, one generation will commend your works to another. And this is obviously this whole series is about this succession of faith that passes through. And there's a, there's a synergy. We've seen it in the dedication services, for example, between the nuclear family and the church. And together we can create an environment. And this research shows that when, when we can get these things present, your batting average goes up. Like this isn't magic. This isn't like, you know, and there's no guilt in this space because, you know, kids from the same family who've had the same parents can go in very different paths. So this is not, and it's about creating an environment in which the batting average of success goes up. So the first thing they talk about is creating congenial, warm relationships, especially between adults and kids, parents and kids. When you are trying to micromanage your kids because your ego is at stake, it becomes an all-out war for control, and your kids know how to play that game. You don't want a war for control. What you want is a warm, congenial environment where you sort of like working in that space together. So critically important, don't be afraid. Like it, fear is just gonna make you controlling. Don't even be afraid that they won't follow Jesus. Just don't be afraid. Because fear will make you try and control the decision to follow Jesus. You need to be chilled. You've chosen to follow Jesus, now chill. Just let them see that. That's enough. If you make that the issue, it will become the the split of course you want them to know but just don't you know burn the house down because you need to be in control of their decision to follow Jesus at the dedication service what we do is we we pledge to do our side so that they can make the call as and when God knows they're ready and then secondly i mean don't screw it up you need a model congruent faith they need to see a good example how we use our time our actions and our behavior what do we normally talk about like is, does faith get a look in you know how often is it like a meaningful part of, of who we are or do they see it as an add on is it a Sunday special and then what are the things where are our commitments like the things they know you will follow through on. Like the things that are negotiable. If something else comes on, you're going to gonna duck and dive. But, but or you, you'll make change. But where are your commitment? What are the things that your kids just know that they know you'll follow through on? That's how we model things. Then we get to our words. And it really matters that we speak to our kids about the value content and meaning of our faith but interestingly, show it in your stories. It's, 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 it's your testimonies and you know, we are used to telling our stories once. Ancient cultures knew that you told them again and again and again and again, until you created what was called an oral tradition, that like literally you tell your story until it became part of their subconscious mental story. I'm convicted by this. I have not shared my testimony with my kids in a long time. whether it's how I came to faith or whatever it is, finding natural ways, especially from adults in their circle, in the church, etc. And then you do want to, this is a research again, together try and engage Scripture in some way. Whether it's through church opportunities, whether it's through homework you get, whatever, whether it's what you do, read, discuss, pray, and do. Like try and find ways to do things out of what you see in the text and then this whole learning thing is that you want to create as many aha moments for them we remember what we learn rather than what we told so if it's their discovery it's like that's my diamond that I wrestle that from the, you know, I mind that truth from life and from God and from the Word. You just tell them, they'll think it's yours. So, what you want is to have a process in which they actually start to wrestle with and dig out. And then, in all of this, an orientation towards grace, encouraging faith development as opposed to demanding compliance. So forgiveness and healthy reconciliation defines the space. They're allowed to mess up. They're allowed to come back home. They're allowed to be prodigals. And you still kill the fattened calf and put the ring on their finger and tell everybody it's wonderful. Make sure that grace, there's lots and lots of space for grace. So back to Eli, his life ends tragically in chapter 4. He's massively overweight he's blind he's immobile devoid of strength and he's got no offspring to maturity the strange thing is is that the judgments against Eli and the outcomes of his life were simply making visible what he had been handed over to his choices sadly as we saw last week God gave him what he wanted So this is a rough word, but in the middle of this rough word, again, is this reminder in verse 35 that God will have a priest who serves his anointed one. And you have, in Old Testament language, the picture of the anointed one, our high priest, the faithful one. You see, God is utterly determined to save. Absolutely. And even in this almost like darkest of of passages, there is this. I will raise up verse thirty-five for myself a faithful high priest who will do what is in my heart and mind. So, spoiler alert for next week. How do we move from a hard or half-hearted state into a whole hearted state? God doesn't want us to stay there, he doesn't want that to be our legacy. He's inviting us. Inviting us to find the remedy for our half-hearted, divided loyalties. Let's pray together. Maybe the worship team you could come up, we're going to do there is none like you. In other words, there's a uniqueness to God. There's no one like Him. He deserves it all. And I just sense this from the Lord for us. My warnings always come with an invitation. So Lord, even today, we don't want to listen and not do.